0: Bit of a blast from the past this week on the Out of the Box podcast. So today you're listening to an interview from 2013, in July actually, when Heidi Pett was presenting the show and Jonathan Harris is her guest. He's an artist and a computer scientist and uh, he co-designed the Vermont States Quarter. We will be back next week as per usual with another original episode of Out of the Box. Out of the Box.
1: Out of the box. Meet people through their music.
0: With Heidi Pett on FBI 94.5.
1: Hello, you're listening to Out of the Box. My name is Heidi Pett, and this week we're joined by Jonathan Harris. He's a storyteller who's spoken at TED, he co-designed the Vermont State Quarter, and he also started a project that measures the emotional temperature of the internet. His latest work is a storytelling site called Cowbird. He tells stories about the real world, usually made of the real world, and from 2009 to 2010 he posted a photo of his life every single day, and he posted a short story that went with each one. Now we're going to hear a lot about a bunch of those different projects and Jonathan's also brought in a whole bunch of the music that he really loves. He's in town for a couple of talks at Vivid Ideas, but he's taken an hour out to tell us about the music and a bunch of other stuff that he's passionate about. Jonathan, welcome to FBI. Uh,
2: Thanks. Nice to be here.
1: (laughs) Now what have you brought in to play for us today?
2: Uh, well, as instructed, I've come up with 10 songs for you. And um, do you want me to just jump right in and mention a few of them? Yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: Tell us what we've got to look forward to.
2: Uh, so one of my favorites is... Um is a song by Philip Glass called Closing. And I remember hearing this for the first time in uh, in Tasmania, actually. I was living in Australia about a decade ago, and I was driving one night in a car I had rented. And it was dark, and I was looking for a place to sleep. And I pulled out into this mountain pass, um, and the stars were out. And it was in- completely isolated and beautiful. And I went to stand next to this river, and I had the car door open and the radio on. And it was I remember it was ABC radio. And the song like came scratchily over the air. And it, I just thought it was one of the most beautiful songs I'd ever. that Ever heard and I like obsessively went back to the car to try to hear uh, the station ID come on so I could know the title of it so I could track it down and um, the station was kind of coming in and out and uh, then they said it was called closing by Philip Glass and uh, I went home and and bought it when I got back to the US and to this day it, it remains one of my favorite songs I just think it's incredibly beautiful
1: That song was Closing by Philip Glass. It was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Jonathan Harris. My name is Heidi Pett, and we'll be hanging out with you for the next hour or so. Jonathan's sharing a bunch of the, his favorite songs, and being somewhat of a professional storyteller, I assume that we have some pretty good stories to go along with them.
2: It, to me, when I hear that, it, it always reminds me of, um, uh, like, this... I always picture um the seasons changing and leaves falling and um and things kind of dying and then in their dying they're trying to like stay alive for a little bit longer so it has all these times when you think the song is going to end and then it comes back for a little bit longer um and then ultimately it collapses by the end um i don't know just to me it it seems to sort of say something about the cycle of life or something like that um
1: So aside from renting cars and having revelations about the cycle of life, what were you doing in Australia at the time?
2: Uh, Back then I was studying in Melbourne, uh, at the University of Melbourne, uh, when I was a junior in college. And uh, I took the chance to do some traveling around um, New Zealand and, and Tasmania and other parts of Australia. So yeah, it was about 10 years ago.
1: So after college you've obviously gone on to create a bunch of these amazing projects. And I wanted to talk to you about the the Photo A Day project that you did a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, because I have read that the reason you started that was because you freaked out because you hadn't done enough things, which looking <laughs> back now seems kind of incongruous because you've done a bunch of different stuff.
2: Well, I think it was that like my projects were taking a really long time to complete, like maybe three or four months on average. And um, during the course of producing those things, I sometimes would feel like I was Um, kind of like a stranger to my own life because I was always in this weird headspace of writing computer code. And um, often I'd feel really disconnected from my day-to-day experience and the relationships in my life and the environments I was in. And I wanted to design a project that would like make me feel more in the moment, I guess, or more aware of my life as I was living it. And so I thought that taking a picture and writing a story every day would kind of force me more into the present um, and a little bit more away from the kind of abstract headspace of computer programming. Yeah, so, you know, like I can look back on the time when I was doing that project, which ended up being 440 days, and I can see any of the photographs from any of those days and immediately, like, reconstruct that whole day for you. Uh, It feels like I have this kind of supercharged memory from that period of my life. Um, and since stopping the project that's no longer the case like I forget a lot more I have um, long stretches of time that go by with only a few things. I can really recall from them I think that's more typical of how we all live um, And so what was funny is that like the reason I started doing that project which was to try to be more in the moment and be more present in my own life um, It ended up having almost the opposite effect because I um, Uh, on the one hand, I was very aware of what was going on, but on the other hand, I felt like I was a spectator to my own life experience or an observer to it and not really present in a lot of moments because I was always looking at how I could photograph them or how I could write about them or I'd be having conversations with somebody and I'd be kind of listening for little bits of dialogue that I could steal to use as the foundation for a story. And... um, there was something very odd about that of kind of like being a, a, a thief uh, to your own life experience somehow. Um, and so ultimately, I decided to stop the project so I could just kind of get my life back.
1: You were saying that you can look back on one of those photos and recall almost that entire day. Mm-hmm. Is there one out of those 440 photos that really stands out as one of your favorites?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was there's a, there's a lot. But there's one day that I still think was sort of like this Almost like a supernatural, mystical kind of day. Um, it was a, a bizarre day. Uh, I, I woke up in southeastern Oregon. I was it was in the middle of a road trip, traveling from Oregon to New Mexico, which are two American states that are separated by about. 15 hours of driving or something like that maybe more Um, and I was in this part of southeastern Oregon that's one of the most desolate and remote parts of America probably a bit like parts of the Australian outback it's um, uh, hundreds of miles in every direction with just kind of barren desert wasteland and there's this one little town called Fields which is right in the middle of it which consists of a gas station and a diner that um, has a uh, board on the wall that they tick every time somebody orders a hamburger and they reset the board each year so you can tell each year how many hamburgers they've sold and they do the same thing for their milk shakes um and then there's a little motel there that has four bedrooms and typically they're filled with hunters that go out there to hunt uh for this bird called chuckers and the types of people that go out there hunting are some pretty rough american characters um you know the types of people that like travel around with guns in their car and um anyway i was there and i woke up there and um I woke up that day, and I was in kind of like a weird trance state of mind where um, uh, life almost felt like a dream a little bit, and I just started acting automatically uh, to things that would come up, and I would make decisions about where to go or what, what direction to walk in kind of by instinct, which is not how I normally am, and it was one of these days that just led into all these crazy situations. I ended up shooting a gun um, with this guy who I met in a hot spring out in the middle of nowhere who I thought was very likely to kill me, um, and uh, he was drunk and had like a pistol holster strapped to his chest and he was wearing these holographic sunglasses that had skulls on them and uh, he was camping out there listening to hip-hop music with his friend um, and it was just kind of a terrifying situation but I kind of went with it and pretended to be a really gruff hunter guy myself and so I shot his gun with him at beer cans and um, kind of diffused any tension that there may have been. Uh, ended up finding a coyote tar- carcass that somebody had stuffed into a uh, wooden toilet which was in the middle of a dried up lake uh, called, which is like a playa, a dried up playa uh, which had nothing around it for tens of miles in any direction. And there was just this little white box out in the middle of the dirt. Um, and I came around the side of it and saw that someone had stuffed this dead coyote into the toilet. Um, just a variety of things like that. I would see these sort of signs lying in the, in the wilderness, like a stick pointing in a certain direction. And I would walk that way and that would lead to something else. So I don't know, it was a weird example of being in a kind of like a flow state for a, for a day um, where life seemed to be this mystical environment. Um, with signs and meaning everywhere. Um, and uh, I've always tried to kind of get back to that headspace that I was in that day because it felt so much more significant than typical day in my life. Um, anyway, so that's a long story. But no, uh, I'm
1: interested. What was the photograph for that day?
2: Uh, the photograph, well, the main photograph for that day was a portrait of the guy with the skull sunglasses and the gun. Um, uh, it was, um, I don't know, it also felt like um, kind of like a transform transformational experience for me where I felt like I was sort of doing away with a part of myself that wasn't really working for me anymore and I, there's all the symbolism about the coyote and what that means and kind of Native American animal s- symbols uh, they say the coyote is like the trickster or the joker and that it represents this kind of silly immature um, uh, approach to life that maybe wasn't useful anymore and I was so, finding that dead was sort of the symbol that like maybe maybe that's a part of myself that I needed to get rid of and and was was now gone and the gun and everything. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was just this this man standing there. Out of
3: the box.
1: Meet people through their music. On FBI. We've been having a bit of conversation about one of the projects that you worked on, which was this photo a day project, and then you went on to write a short story about each one, and you just told this amazing story about this adventure in the desert and shooting beer cans and this coyote and everything. And what I wanted to ask you, because so much of your work comes from your life around you, I'm curious about whether you think that you have had a particularly interesting life or whether anybody's life would sound that fantastic if it was told in the same way.
2: Right. Um <laughs> I think I've been really lucky with my life and um you know I I I grew up in a way that was very lucky. I always had uh, enough uh, money <laughs> and got good educational opportunities and all that stuff and I think um as an adult like since I've been making art for the last 10 years or so I've I often choose my projects in such a way that they will steer my life in a certain direction that I'm curious about. And so I use my projects as a means of growing as a person. Um, and sometimes I'll feel that there's like a deficit of a certain type of thing in my life. And one way to do that would be to just change my behavior. But I sometimes find it easier to prescribe myself a project to do and that will force me to, to have a change. Um, and so like a lot of the projects I've done in recent years that have involved having really intense real world experiences came as a reaction to me spending so much time sitting behind computer screens and just feeling like um, my time was passing and and I wasn't becoming the person I wanted to be. And so I started design projects like The Whale Hunt and Balloons of Bhutan and more recently I Love Your Work, um, which all put me in these really intense physical situations that I know would be good for me as a person. And then I find a way to make work about them. Um, so so yeah, I, I think it's a combination of um, yeah, of having a really lucky, privileged, interesting life, but also uh, making certain choices to, to try to push my life in a certain direction.
1: I want to come back to things like the whale hunt, and I love your work, just after this. But what I'm curious about, I suppose, is that your latest project, Cowbird, is all about individual people telling stories about themselves and their own life. And I guess that's where that question was coming from, whether you think that everybody has the capacity to be a storyteller.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that um, the thing about um, our lives is that they're each unique and the particular paths that we walk are paths that nobody else ends up walking. And we often find ourselves in situations where you overhear a bit of dialogue or you see the way sunlight hits something a certain way um, or you notice some other kind of thing. And very often you're the only one to experience that thing. And most of that stuff we just kind of notice or don't notice and then we continue on with our lives but I think that some of that stuff is really really beautiful and useful to communicate to others and I think in moments like that it's good to record that stuff that you see or that stuff that you overhear that no one else does and share it with other people so it can have a life beyond you and I think that's really the ethic that's at the heart of Cowbird is trying to create an environment and a tool that will encourage people to engage in that type of storytelling where it's almost like we're building this collective library of life experiences that we each contribute to when we encounter something that feels like it would belong there, and in um, creating a space where that's that's okay and that's accepted and that's encouraged, um, even if it's uh, just a kind of a very small moment that happens on your way to work or, or whatever, you know.
1: So for people who haven't recently been up till 2 or 3 a.m. reading all of the archives of Cowbird, can you briefly explain what it is?
2: (laughs) Sure. So Cowbird is basically a community of storytellers all around the world. And um, it's a free website that allows people to post stories about their life experience, incorporating photography and sound and text, and then lots of metadata, like where it happened, when it happened, who was involved, what it was about, all of that stuff. And what Cowbird does is that it automatically finds interconnections between different people's lives so that when you post a story, it connects your story to other people who have experienced similar things. And in that way, it creates this kind of collective ecosystem that's a, kind of a, a narrative space or a memory space that, um, that incorporates lots of different people's lives. And um, we're, we're trying to build like a, a repository for wisdom and life experiences. And um, some of that stuff is serious, some of it's funny, some of it's sad. It really runs the gamut. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, at heart, it's this community of storytellers.
1: I want to talk to you more about the interplay of storytelling and technology that seems to be a huge part of a lot of your work, but what we might do now is take a listen to something else that you've brought into play for us.
2: What will we go with? Ah, let's see. <laughs> How about um, let's go with um, with Lake Marie by by John Prine um, from the Austin City Limits Festival.
1: I'm going to get you to tell us why you've chosen that one after this, but we might listen to it on its own merits first. You're listening to FBI radio, this is out of the box. My name is Heidi Pett, and I'm joined this week by Jonathan Harris.
2: We
3: were standing, standing by peaceful waters.
1: That was a song called Lake Marie by John Prine. It was chosen by my guest this week on Out of the Box. His name is Jonathan Harris.
2: I've also brought in a song by Portishead called The Rip. It's from their their new album, Third. And to me, it's just... Um, this really, really intense and dark and beautiful song that um, kind of like its beauty comes from its intensity and um, it builds and builds and builds to this crescendo Um, and it just always kind of takes me to another place when I hear it.
1: So fair. Um, I was saying that I find it quite intimidating when we get people on the show who have experience in radio because I don't always know what I'm doing. And you were saying that Cowbird has found itself some real fans in the public radio community.
2: It's actually interesting. Within Cowbird, for some reason, it's become really popular among the public radio community in America, like This American Life and that that kind of crowd. And so my the editorial director, my friend Annie, she's like super into the radio world. And so I've I've been exposed to it a lot recently through her and through Cowbird, but I don't have a lot of personal experience with it.
1: I think there is a real sort of resurgence of radio storytelling and there's a real community around it as well. We have a program on FBI called All The Best, which is, it's just started broadcasting nationally actually. And there's something about radio that fosters this real sense of
2: community. There's not this like, get rich temptation. And so people are, have this very communal approach to it that you don't see in like photography or filmmaking where some people are really being successful. Um, I mean, there's sort of like an economy of prestige, I guess, like getting on This American Life is something every radio producer in America aspires to, but it's still pretty, it's a pretty small community. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously trite to say this, but I think that money often can have a really corrupting influence on things. Um, I, I remember reading an essay by David Foster Wallace um, last year sometime, uh, where he talks about, um, he's, he's talking about art versus advertising and what um, differentiates art from advertising. And what he says is really interesting. He says that um, essentially advertising has no status as a gift, um, whereas art does. Art is something that gives, like good art is like a gift and that it gives something to people and it asks nothing in return except maybe gratitude. It doesn't expect anything. Um, whereas, uh, whereas advertising uh, wants something from the people that see it. And so I think um when you when you do stuff that's just like a gift that's just pure um, it um it disarms people, and when people feel like you want something from them uh, it it has this kind of corroding effect sometimes so yeah, I think um when there's when there's not money involved in a in a system um, it, that system can can be really pure.
1: You mentioned earlier, and I found it kind of interesting saying that. Yeah, radio does seem to have this kind of community, whereas things like photography and other disciplines don't necessarily. And I know that you you studied photography, and it's something that seems to have fallen by the wayside a little bit. You seem to use it in your personal projects and sort of as an adjunct to the other stuff you're doing. Is there a reason that you strayed away from it as a discipline in and of itself? Well,
2: I guess I've always been more interested in combining things as opposed to adopting any one medium completely. Uh, like, I've never considered myself a, a writer or a photographer or a filmmaker. I've always sort of used those things as pieces to make larger projects. And that's, that's I don't know if, that, if I have any reason for that. It's just kind of how I, how I like to create stuff.
1: And you've certainly added another aspect to all of those different disciplines that you use to tell stories, which is technology and Mm. software programming.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was a thing I learned in college. And then it took me a number of years to figure out how to use to make anything interesting because, you know, the the typical way that you're taught to use computer programming is extremely logical and rational and um, not very creative. But with time, I realized that it was actually a really, really powerful expressive medium and that you could make things that could be experienced by a large percentage of the human population uh, using the internet in a way that was more difficult with other traditional mediums like painting and photography and so on. And so, yeah, I've been designing these like interactive storytelling ecosystems ever since.
1: Because to me, people who program software are really straight down the line logical and they're not creative people, which is obviously my own prejudice. But it is interesting to see that kind of technology and that discipline being used in a really very creative way and yeah i think i think it is definitely my own prejudice saying that people who who write code aren't creative whereas i guess you are creating something when you write code you're creating this big interactive thing that responds to the world around it
2: yeah i mean i really see code as a as a primary medium the same way paint or photography or film or any of these other things are primary mediums and because it's a relatively new medium it's not often thought to be uh, like an art material but for the people who have grown up using it and who have learned to use it, it it really is an art material and you can use it to make all sorts of beautiful things.
1: Can you tell us about some of the things you've made? I know you've got We Feel Fine which was that one that measures the emotional temperature of the internet. Now for people who aren't familiar with it that sounds like a really really crazy idea. How does it work?
2: Uh, It's actually pretty simple how it works. We Feel Fine uh, scans all of the new self-expression that's being posted on the Internet, on blogs and Twitter and things like that. And it searches for any sentence that contains the phrase, I feel or I am feeling. And then it grabs that full sentence up to the sentence boundary. And then it also finds demographic info about the person who wrote the sentence, like their gender, their age, where they live, and the weather conditions when they wrote it when they posted it, and uh, it stores all that info in a database that collects between 10 and 20,000 feelings per day on average, and it's been running for like six years now, so I think it's like up to about 30 million feelings that have been collected, and then there's this interactive environment that I built uh, for browsing all that material, and there's also a book that my, um, my collaborator on that project, Sep Canvar, and I made uh, a couple years ago, which does some more like deep science into the emotional landscape of, of the web.
1: So you've chosen to call the project, We Feel Fine. Mm -hmm. Is that reflective of the fact that on balance, people are pretty happy or is that what you've found?
2: Yeah, that's what we found that like people kind of fluctuate and they have their ups and their downs, but overall people, um, people feel kind of fine. And um, in fact, the most uh, common feeling by far is better. That's um, almost twice as common as, as any of the other feelings. And, uh, yeah, and I think more than more than being an actual finding, it's kind of the message that we wanted to put out, that, like, you know, life has its ups and downs, but overall, like, there's there can be this balance in the middle that, that you can find. Over the years, one of the bands that um, I've loved the most and that I keep coming back to is uh, Godspeed, You Black Emperor. They're this um, band from Montreal that broke up for 10 years and recently got back together, and they've only created a small handful of albums, but they're these kind of, like, really beautiful orchestral epic like post-punk pieces that incorporate spoken word and cello and violin and all this stuff and their songs for me like take me to this kind of other mental place that feels almost kind of transcendental and sublime and um i listen to a lot it a lot when i'm writing code and when i'm working it's probably the music i listen to most when i'm working because uh, it's so kind of abstract i don't know i think for me like the best art has that quality like it it transports you to another place and it gives you this kind of transcendent experience that um, that uh, just you yeah, know delivers you to a different mental place I guess and they, their music I think more than any other band um, really does that for me and there's one song uh, I picked out of theirs called uh, Moya there's many songs I could have picked from them but that's one that I think is particularly beautiful um, and I listen to it a lot.
1: Let's have a listen to it right now. Godspeed you Black Emperor on Out of the Box and you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 FM or streaming online and mobile at fbiradio.com. This song's called Moya. This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio. That was a song by Godspeed You Black Emperor. Jonathan Harris picked it out to play for you. Um, and he was saying that those songs kind of put you in this this strange, transcendental almost like state. And something that I wanted to ask you about um, is that a lot of the directions that your life and your art and whether those two are actually even separate is something that I want to come back to. Um, but a lot of the directions that you take in life and in art seem to be as a result of you know, it's signs or portents or something like that, and that story that you you mentioned about the coyote and how that was quite symbolic. But you have another one about an owl. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, and I'm almost hesitant to talk about this given how kind of common and cliche owls have become in pop culture in the last few years. But but anyway. Um, yeah, it was it was a thing that happened to me about three years ago. I was living in a little log cabin in central Oregon in, um, uh, next to this lake. It was about 4,000 feet of altitude and really remote, like I would see another person about once every four days when I went into town to buy groceries. And um, I, I had just left Brooklyn, New York, so I wanted a real change and just get back to nature and simple living and all that. Um, and anyway, I was there the first night, and I was lying in bed. I was in this little loft in this cabin, and it was totally silent. I had just turned the lights off, and I was under the covers, and it was such high altitude that there weren't even crickets or anything. It was like total silence. And um, I had been lying there for about a minute, and then suddenly, out of the darkness and the silence, I hear this uh, like this blood-curdling scream coming from outside, like a, gro- a terrible sound. And I sat up in bed and I turned on the lights and I was like, what the hell was that? And, um, and it was silent again. And then about a minute later the sound came again and it sounded like somebody being ax murdered or, or strangled or something. And uh, I, I got a flashlight and I went outside and I started shining around and the sound came a third time and it was coming from up in a tree and I shone the light up in the tree and down through the beam of light came these two white wings swooping at me and um, it was this great horned owl and it nearly hit my head it came about an inch from my head and then it went up into another tree and I shone the light into the other tree and it swooped down at me again and this became a kind of like a nightly ritual that would happen for about the next four and a half months like the owl would scream I'd go outside I'd shine the light it would swoop at me and then it would go away we'd do it again the next night and it became this kind of dance that we that we did and then um I, it was time to leave Oregon and to move away and uh the night before I was scheduled to leave, the neighbor came over and he told me that he had found a dead owl lying in the ground. And from that point, I started noticing or seeing or finding um, owl things like everywhere in my life. Like I would see real owls, I would see bars and restaurants called the Owl Bar or whatever, I'd see people wearing t-shirts with owls. And for better or worse, it became a kind of like wayfinding device for me in my life when I would see an owl representation somewhere, it would kind of tell me like, keep walking in that direction. Um, And whether or not there was actually anything going on there, if it was just my psychological imaginings, like I could see it both ways. But I think what it did do is that it helped to get me a little bit out of my head and into my heart and my intuition more. And I think especially studying computer science and being so immersed in biology like a lot of us are nowadays, it's really easy to forget that we have intuition and that we have a body sense of what's worth doing and what's not worth doing. And there's this danger of becoming so thought-based and rational. And um, anyway, for me, the owl um uh process was a way of getting a little bit out of my head.
1: You were saying though that you're a little bit hesitant to tell that story because of the proliferation of owls. Oh my imagery god, they're everywhere culture now. I mean, now. You
2: walk into any like tacky house goods store and there's like owl pepper shakers and owl aprons and owl this and owl that. Yeah, I don't know what happened with owls in the last three years, but they are everywhere. <laughs> it's almost like that put a bird on it song have you seen that one? Uh, in what is that? I think it's an episode of Portland. Oh, yeah. Portland yeah, 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 yeah right. Inverted, totally, yeah, and uh, yeah, and owls are a bird. Yeah, it makes you wonder what will be the next, the next thing after owls because this cannot continue. It's it's too much. The owls.
1: <laughs> what do you have any sort of? Could you hazard a guess?
2: Of what's going to be next? Personally, I I could imagine it being dinosaurs, something with like a brontosaurus maybe. That's like totally not on the radar now, but I think brontosaurus dinosaur has the potential to become a cultural symbol the way owls have become. But a lot of things would have to happen between now and then.
1: It's funny, It um, and maybe this was something that was particular to where I grew up, but it was like when you know the emo kind of thing was in and everybody did the emo thing. And then there was this weird transition from emo to when, you know, indie and I I hate the word hipster, but I'm going to have to say it out loud. But when that became sort of the cultural group that everybody hated and there was this weird transition period in where I grew up where it was all about dinosaurs and it was all about like dinosaurs and like cute weird stuff. And then that kind of went into, it was really odd. It went from this like wearing all red and black to like wearing all red and black with a funny little plastic backpack with a cartoon character on it. And then that kind of fed into something else. It was, yeah, it was very strange.
2: I think I must have missed the dinosaur phase. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's already happened. Maybe it has. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's have a listen to something else that you've brought
2: into play for us. What do we go with? Uh, Let's see, what do we have left here? Um, uh, Let's listen to Ballad of a Thin Man by Bob Dylan. Um, This is from his famous Royal Albert Hall concert when... Uh, he played the first set acoustic and the second set electric and um, the crowd kind of reacted against him and um, ended up having this confrontation and a guy kind of, uh, I think, came and assaulted him with a knife in the in the dressing room after the show ended. And um, I think it, what I love about it is it, it's this creator kind of at the height of his creative talent and powers. But who's so far ahead that his fans haven't quite caught up yet, and um, and actively like fight him, um, but then ultimately, uh, you know, his his way ends up uh, proving to be the right way, uh, and it's just this uh, incredibly charged um, rendition of the song, uh, given all the tension, and uh, um, it's very um, strange and esoteric too. Like a lot of the lines that he says, you don't really know what he's referring to or what he's talking about. Um, but it has the spirit of, like, someone being in control and other people not understanding.
1: Let's have a listen to it right now. It's called Ballad of a Thin Man. You're listening to FBI Radio, and this is Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio that was a Bob Dylan song recorded at the Royal Albert Hall called Ballad of a Thin Man. My name is Heidi Pat, and this is out of the box which means that Jonathan Harris is choosing all the songs that you've been listening to over the last little while. And look if you have just tuned in you can head to ondemand.fbiradio.com to listen back. Now Jonathan we've been talking about a bunch of the different projects you've worked on. Cowbird which is this huge interactive worldwide storytelling. I don't even know what you would call it even platform yeah
2: community community platform platform, (laughs)
1: something like that um but something that you've been working on on a i guess more individual scale is a project called i love your work can you tell us about that one
2: sure yeah i love your work is the newest thing i've released and it's a bit of a departure from things i've done in the past because it's a little a little more racy than things i've done in the past it's uh Um, kind of an intimate portrait of nine different women who make lesbian porn in New York City. And basically I spent 24 hours with each of these women over the course of 10 straight days And I followed them around, spent the night at their apartment, and then every five minutes I took 10 seconds of video of whatever was happening at that moment. So the project consists of 2,202 of these 10-second video clips, which provide these little kind of abstract windows into the moment-to-moment realities of different human beings. And um, it's around six and a half hours of footage and all. And then I built an interactive environment that allows you to browse through all that material in in a really fluid way.
1: You're saying it's one of the more racy projects you've worked on, um, but something that I did read about it is that the actual material itself isn't usually that. Racy.
2: That's right. Yeah, it's one of those. I mean, lesbian porn is one of those phrases that's in- incredibly salacious and people hear it and they have all sorts of images conjured up immediately. But when you actually see the project, um, there's very little explicit material within it. Most of it's like checking email and riding subways and grocery shopping and just, you know, ordinary people living ordinary lives. Um, there are some explicit moments, too. But when you see them, they don't even really feel um pornographic in a way because um you see the artifice of how they were constructed and um when you see the artifice of a fantasy it's hard to believe in the fantasy uh so it's more a portrait of just young women in america today kind of navigating gender and sexuality and fame and privacy and all of these issues that we all deal with
1: what do you think about the discussion about whether or not photography is art
2: whether or not it's art um, I don't know. Is that a discussion?
1: <laughs> I think so. I think people are arguing about that on the internet right at this very minute.
2: Oh, um, yeah. I mean, in general discussions of like what is art and what's not art are, are ones I try to avoid. <laughs> but, Tedious
1: uh, would maybe be the word. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, yeah. I just like I, I always believe in just making interesting stuff and putting it out there and people can see it however they want to see it.
1: Let's have a listen to something else that you've brought into play for us. We've got a couple of songs left. What are we going to go with?
2: Um, let's listen to Song for Azula by Phosphorescent.
4: Just as fickle as a feather in a stream See honey, I saw love, you see it came to me It put its face up to my face so I could see Yeah, then I saw love, it disfigured me Into something I am not recognized. Come on in I will not open myself up this way again I'll lay my face to the saw nor my teeth to the sand I will not lay like this for days now upon you You will not see me fall You'll see me struggle to stand To be acknowledged by some touch From his knowledge I said, come on, I will not open myself up this way Tree night. I see the shadows that we cast in the cold, clean light My feet are gold, and my heart is white And we race out on the desert plains all night see, Honey, I am not some broken thing I do not lay. Will come to call from some awful dream Oh, no you, folks, you come to see You just stand there in the glass looking at me But my heart is wild and my bones are steel, And I could kill you
1: Was Song for by Phosphorescent. Now we're about to wind up out of the box for this week. My guest Jonathan Harris, I guess you could say he's a professional storyteller and we have talked a lot about the different ways that you tell stories, whether it's through film or photographs or short stories and building these communities and platforms and environments for other people to tell tell their stories, which I guess begs the question about how you see storytelling as a function for people. What I I read an interesting interview of yours a little while ago where you mentioned – I've forgotten the name of the psychologist, actually – but who was saying that that long process of coming back on a ship from war and figuring out how to tell stories about that experience was maybe why we didn't hear about things like post-traumatic stress. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit? I've forgotten the name of the psychologist
2: and exactly how it all worked. Yeah, his name's Jonathan Shea, and he uh, he is a scholar of – uh, ancient Greece, and also a psychologist, and he noticed that in um, like the epic poetry of ancient Greece, there's all of this talk of battle, but there's very little talk of PTSD. Um, and one of the reasons he surmises for that is that back in those days, there would be these wars that would occur, and they'd be incredibly traumatic and brutal and everything, but then there would be the journey home from the war, on by boat usually. And on that journey home, the soldiers would have the chance uh, to decompress, but also to tell stories about the experience, to package up the experience into stories, which would sort of insulate them from the trauma of it. And so then when they got home to be with their wives, they would have these neat little stories they could use to contain what happened to them. Whereas today you have soldiers that are getting their leg blown off in Fallujah and then on the next flight back to Ohio. And then the next night they're having like mozzarella sticks at a TGI Friday's with their wife and their kids. And that um, context shift can be incredibly jarring for people. Um, so, so he talks a lot about the utility that storytelling has as a way to help us make sense of what happens to us um, so that it can't have as much power over us anymore. And I think in general storytelling is something we use to make our lives seem to have meaning, which I think is really maybe the most important thing that humans require is a sense of meaning. Um, and I, I think uh, storytelling is the best tool that we have to, to create meaning for ourselves.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling a couple of stories about your own life as well. And if you have been listening for the whole hour and you're interested in any of the projects that we have talked about, we'll throw the links on the program page. It's fbiradio.com. You can go to the On Air tab, Programs and playlists, Out of the Box, and we'll throw off a link to Cowbird and I Love Your Work and... Is there anything else that you would suggest that people would go on, go out there and find? Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, The Whale Hunt is a cool project. Uh, it's thewhalehunt.org. Uh, we Feel Fine is a, a fun, older project, wefeelfine.org. Um, there's a, a nice video about my Today project, um, which my friend Scott Thrift made, which you might want to include a link to as well.
1: Thanks for that. And now we've got time for one last song. What will we go out on?
2: Um, I think our last song is I Never Learned to Share by James Blake. That would be the newest song on the list. And um, it's a song that I love because it only has one lyric. It only has one line. And it I think it shows how it's possible to make something um, so complex out of something very simple. And this is something you see in lots of mediums, like every um, every furniture designer makes a chair and every still life painter at some point paints a vase of flowers. And in these cases, it's not so much what you're saying, but it's how you're saying it that matters. Um, and I think the song is a great expression of that idea that uh, even given this really simple lyric, um, James Blake is able to create this incredible landscape that takes you on this journey.
3: My brother and my sister, don't speak to me, but I don't blame them, but I don't blame them. My brother and my sister, don't speak to me, but I don't blame them. But I don't blame them my brother and my sister don't come speak see to me, me. But, but I don't I'm blame them, them. But, but I don't I'm blame them. them my brother and my sister don't come speak see to me, me. But, but I don't I'm blame them.
1: through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.